Welcome to the 645th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. Tonight is Friday, November the 11th, and the speaker of the evening is Ed Bonenkamper on A Victor, Not a Butcher, U.S. Grant's Overlooked Military Genius. Welcome him, please. Thank you. Last year when I was at uh, Vicksburg doing a number of the pre-tours, I got a lot of insights and went a lot of places that we never got a chance to go on the tour and uh, met a lot of people, saw a lot of topography and history and things. And one of the things I, I quickly learned about Vicksburg was what an amazingly brilliant campaign it was by Ulysses Grant, just an incredible campaign. And when you're down there, you drive the terrain, you drive through Louisiana, you, you drive champ, you go Champion Hill and Jackson, you just see incredible things. So. I understand now why it was called and has been called one of the greatest military campaigns in the history of the world. So when I came across this book called A Victor Not a Butcher uh, about, by a man named Ed Bonnekemper, I read it and I found it a fascinating book, very much confirming many of our beliefs and in fact many of the things that uh, late speakers or uh, latest speakers like Richard McMurray and Ed Byers both said that uh, the West is where it was won and particularly with men like Grant. So uh, we are very privileged today to have a man with us who has written a book all about Ulysses S. Grant. And uh, he's written a, a, just a little uh, ahead of time kudo here. He's working on another book right now, which would be fascinating. Tell me the title of that one again, Ed. Did George B. McClellan try to lose the Civil War? <laughs> Did George B. McClellan try to lose the Civil War? Uh, if you read his first two books, you'll probably know where it's going. So, But um, we're very glad to have Ed with us tonight. Ed Bonacamper has a B.A. in American History. He's a law degree from Yale Law School. His earlier book before the one on Grant was How Robert E. Lee Lost the Civil War. Uh, he's currently a visiting lecturer in military history at Muhlenberg College, where he himself went to school. And he's an adjunct history professor at the American Military University. We're very glad to have Ed with us. He does have his books with us tonight. I'm sure after he's done, uh, there's out some out on the table. He'd be happy to sign them for you tonight. Would you, he's here tonight with his lovely wife, Susan, and some of his family and relatives. Please welcome Ed Bonnekemper. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here at the nation's first Civil War Roundtable. I really do appreciate the invitation, and my wife and I uh, enjoy the opportunity to uh, vacation for five or six days in Chicago. It's a tough life. Uh, and I, I do want to introduce a couple of um, friends and a relative at the, at the uh, uh, table here. First, I'd like to introduce uh, John Widemoyer, uh, our nephew, who lives in the Chicago suburbs. And our good friends, uh, Wally and Kate Combs, who came all the way down from Madison, Wisconsin, to be with us tonight. <clears throat> my uh, talk tonight is uh, billed uh, on my um, grant book, but first I want to give uh, a general overview of my biased views on the Civil War. Here you have what is perhaps the largest land area in human history to have declared its own independence and not been able to hold it. They did something very wrong. They did several things very wrong. And I'll give you my views on, on how the Confederacy blew a chance to uh, maintain its independence. Now, some of you are wondering about Missouri and uh, Kentucky being on this map. This map is from a Confederate perspective, and it shows you all the states that were represented 
in the Richmond, in the Confederate Congress in Richmond. Now, yes, a couple states were also represented in Washington at the same time. Um, but even if you ignore those, what you have is an area as large as Western Europe, uh, one that could have been, probably should have been, much more effectively defended than it was. Uh, I think that the major problem that the South had was that uh, some of its leading generals, and specifically Robert E. Lee, uh, did some things that were inconsistent with what should have been the grand strategy of the Confederacy. Now, um, with an area this big, I think the Confederacy would have been much better with a, a central capital like in Atlanta, some, somewhere much more difficult to reach. But that aside, the burden was on the North to win the war. A tie was a victory for the Confederacy. So the Confederacy should have been on the strategic and tactical defensive throughout the war. Robert E. Lee was the great proponent of being on the offensive. He fought as though he were a Union general with unlimited resources, and he wasn't. The South was outnumbered three and a half to one in white men of fighting age. The North had greater industrial strength. Um, another very important factor is that weaponry had changed since the time of the Mexican War, and that you had such things uh, in increasing prominence throughout the war as the rifled musket, that is the rifle rather than the, the older musket, you had rifled artillery. You had the mini ball greatly increasing the accuracy of the projectiles. You had more and more repeater weapons, and you had, uh, had uh, breech loaders instead of muzzle loaders. All of these things meant that there had been a significant change since the time of the Mexican War, and early in the war, the better generals took into account the fact that uh, what their eyes told them that you did not want to be attacking, frontally assaulting, especially an entrenched enemy uh, during this war because it was going to cost you dearly. And ironically, Lee and not Grant was the greatest practitioner of the frontal assault. Uh, and we're not going to spend time on the details of Lee's campaigns tonight. That's for another time and my earlier book and perhaps a later book I'm thinking about doing on Grant and Lee, winner and loser, to really focus focus on their differences and do as thorough a statistical analysis on Lee as I've done in my grant book on all of Grant's uh, campaigns uh, and battles. Now, uh, you ask, well, how did we get this general understanding that we in American society have about Robert E. Lee being the great general, perhaps the greatest general, one of the greatest in history, and this Grant is a drunk, nobody, nothing, butcher. That is what the common uh, uh, story has been over the decades since the Civil War. Now, where did this all get started, and why do we have this view permeating our society and, and hopefully being changed a bit by several uh, recent books? But where did this come from? Well, you know, it's commonly said that winners write the history of wars. That did not happen with respect to the Civil War. You know what happened after the Civil War, in my view? Northerners went back home, and they got down to the business of industrializing the country or farming the country, but they got back to business as normal. And that the war, yes, it was an important event, um, but it was not uh, a society-shattering event in the North. On the other hand, 95% of the war was fought in the Confederacy. 
the Confederacy was economically devastated by the fact that the fighting had occurred there. Its major social institution, slavery, was ended. That meant four million African Americans, previously in a, in a slave condition, were now free in society. Free being a relative term, as we know. Uh, and also, keep in mind that one-fourth of Confederate soldiers, one-fourth of Confederate men between the ages of 20 and 45 were now dead. So although the South suffered 260,000 deaths to the North's 360,000 deaths, the numbers that I recited before showing the, the much greater population in the North shows you the devastating impact those numbers had on the South. So the South was trying to pick up the pieces. And a couple of um, not very impressive Civil War generals, uh, Jubal Early and Nelson Pendleton, William Nelson Pendleton, um, created the myth of the lost cause from 1870 to 1900. Uh, they they saw that there was a vacuum in the South, there was a need to restore Southern morale, and they sat down and deliberately created this myth. They created organizations, they controlled publications, they got people to swear affidavits, and they, they found a god for their religion in Robert E. Lee, who conveniently for their purposes died in 1870, never having gotten involved in the mudslinging after the war, and um, and very effectively created this myth that the South never had a chance to win and that Lee did the best you could possibly do and that he was a great general. And in the course of that, uh, Ulysses S. Grant got downgraded very much. Well, the only reason he won is because he was a butcher, a bludgeoner, and he, he had massive numbers, and that's it. Now, the problem is that this uh, at first became a Southern myth, but by the Spanish-American War and then World War I, as there was a national fervor in this country, Lee be became a national hero. Some books were rewritten, and the titles changed from Lee, the Confederate hero, to Lee, the Great American. Same book, but now he was an American hero. And then in the 1930s and 1940s, of course, Douglas Southall Freeman, a Richmond, Virginia reporter who used to salute Lee's statue on his way to work every day in Richmond, wrote a four-volume set called uh, R.E. Lee. And uh, basically in that book, and, and the series of books is beautifully written, and lots of footnotes, uh, and it appears to be neutral, but it, it really isn't. Uh, but it was a great defense of Lee, and it basically um, uh, had Lee walking on water. One little problem, if Lee walked on water, how did the South lose the war? So Freeman did a follow-up. Freeman, of course, wrote Lee's Lieutenants, and Lee's lieutenants could easily have been called Lee's scapegoats because in Lee's lieutenants we learned that everything that went wrong with the Army of Northern Virginia was due to Longstreet, Jackson, the Hill, the Hill Boys, Stewart, etc. Somebody else was always at fault. So it really has only been in the last couple decades that people have backed off and started to take an honest look, an honest evaluation, I think a much more neutral evaluation of what was going on and in that evaluation, I think uh, Lee is coming down a few pegs, and Grant is certainly being elevated. And I think he's being elevated, he certainly should be, to the position of number one Civil War general. And that's what I uh, am going to discuss in some detail tonight. Now, let me just explain um, my overall criticisms of, of Lee. 
Uh, just two major ones. Number one, way too aggressive, way too offensive uh, for the side on which he was fighting. I said the South, the South needed only a tie. He went for the win and in the process lost far more manpower than the South could afford to lose. Here is a brief sample. These are wounded and wounded and killed in Lee's first 14 months in command. Remember now, his his side, his country, if you will, is outnumbered three and a half to one white men of fighting age. He loses 80,000 troops killed and wounded uh, from seven days through Gettysburg, while his opponents, his opponents only lose 71,000. Now, you can't win a war fighting with those kinds of numbers. And um, uh, by, by the end of the Gettysburg campaign, Lee had pretty well decimated the quantity and quality of his army. And the army that faced Grant in the Overland Campaign in 1864 was a mere shadow of the really fine army that Lee took command of uh, on June the 1st, 1862. So number one, Lee, way too aggressive, way too offensive. Look at the Antietam and Gettysburg numbers. They tell you that it was a serious mistake to, to go on a strategic offensive into enemy territory. Look at those numbers, just devastating. And the Antietam campaign, he did all on his own without anyone else's blessing. And the Gettysburg campaign was undertaken um, on his advice when he convinced President Davis that instead of sending aid to um, either Vicksburg or into Tennessee, where the Tullahoma campaign was starting to, to uh, develop, uh, that the best defense was a good offense. Let's go east. Uh, let's, go, let's go north in the east. And you can see the results. So Lee was doing all the wrong things from the point of, do you, are you defensive or offensive? Lee's other problem, a really big problem, was Lee was a Virginian first and a Confederate second. And this had devastating impacts throughout the war because again and again and again, Lee refused to send reinforcements elsewhere. And it only happened, the reinforcements were only sent elsewhere one time before Chickamauga. And because Lee fought it, they got out there late, and they got out there with only 5,000 out of Longstreet's 15,000 troops, and they did not have their artillery at Chickamauga. Chickamauga would have been a much greater victory. But again and again, uh, in the Lee book, I talk about this. Tomorrow morning at the Pritzker Military Museum, I'm going to talk about this. Lee's adverse impact on the West was tremendous. Now, for tonight's purposes, the, uh, uh, the glorification of Robert E. Lee came at the price of um, uh, denigrating Ulysses S. Grant, which I think is a real shame. And, uh, and so I've written a book uh, trying to restore the reputation of Ulysses S. Grant. Now, you've already, you've already heard in your question and answer section about, about his, his real name being Hiram Ulysses Grant and the hug bit. Um, so let's jump right into... Uh, right into his military experience. Mexican War, fresh out of the academy, goes down to Louisiana before war even breaks out, which is a big advantage because he gets involved early. Ulysses S. Grant, unlike McClellan, unlike Lee, unlike most Civil War generals who had Mexican War experience, had the great advantage of fighting under old rough-and-ready Zachary Taylor in the early campaigns of the war in southern Texas and northern Mexico. All very successful, all very aggressive. Now, Old Rough and Ready was just that. Didn't care a hoot about the uniform. 
uh, was not a big one on military for military formality, uh, got down and dirty with the men, and uh, uh, was was just a, a a practical, common sense, ordinary kind of guy. And when Grant, in his memoirs, writes about Zachary Taylor, you say, you know, this this description sounds like Ulysses Grant, and it was. Grant modeled himself on Old Rough and Ready. Now, Old Rough and Ready was so successful in northern Mexico that James K. Polk, the Democratic president who started the Mexican War so that we could steal as much land as possible from Mexico, did not like the way these victories were going because a, a Frankenstein was being created. This guy, Zachary Taylor, might run against me for president in 1848. So we got to tone things down here a bit. So... Uh, and he didn't have a really good Democratic uh, general to give credit to or, or give resources to. So he figured, well, I'll split the credit between two wigs. That's better than let one wig take all the credit. So what he did was he took away most of Zachary Taylor's men um, and transferred them to the East Coast uh, to Winfield Scott. So uh, the Winfield Scott is the general under whom most Civil War generals who had Mexican War experience fought. And he's the only one that was seen by most of them. And uh, Winfield Scott was old fuss and feathers. 300-pound general, the big shoulder epaulets, very formal. And, and that was the structure that was seen by most of these other um, junior officers. And I really think that uh, uh, the exposure to both helped Grant tremendously. And I also think that the relatively easy victories that were gained by the Americans uh, in Mexico uh, misled generals such as Robert E. Lee into thinking that uh, going on the offensive was a fairly easy thing to do. Um, I've already explained the great change in weaponry between the Mexican War and the Civil War, uh, and, and there are lots of other factors, like the fact that the Mexicans were not very well motivated, not, were not very well trained, not very well generaled, etc. Okay. After the Mexican War, uh, in, in which, by the way, Grant performed several heroic actions and, and uh, uh, gained, gained a lot of respect. Uh, Grant came home, married his sweetheart, uh, was, was stationed in the uh, western New York and, and Michigan areas for, for a couple years. Then disaster struck. Grant was assigned isolated duty in California. And when I say isolated, I mean isolated. What he had to do was get a ship out of New York, go down the east coast to Panama, across the isthmus, get another ship, go up the west coast, two months to get there. And on the way, his voyage alone, about 100 out of the 600 people died of yellow fever getting across Panama. Typical trip. Now, the biggest problem was that he was isolated from his wife. When he left home, he had one child. A second child was on the way. Uh, in the first year he was on the west coast, he heard from her oh, one time, oh, one letter. Uh, and no fault of anybody. That's just the way it was. Uh, and if you read his correspondence during this period of time, you say to yourself, this man is going to have a mental breakdown. He is going nuts. And what he was really doing, of course, and that may be true, but what he was really doing was he was drinking a lot more than he should have. And this is the one time that we know that Grant had a serious problem with alcohol. And just so I don't forget it later, no problems with alcohol during the Civil War all lies by reporters looking for a story, uh, by fellow generals looking to take credit away from Grant for themselves, like General Halleck did that, and, and, there, and there were others who falsely accused Grant of drinking. There are two possible incidents in the Civil War. 
Uh, neither one had any impact on any campaign if, in fact, they did occur. But we do know in the 1850s, Grant had a problem. Um, so what happens that Grant could not tolerate alcohol. One drink, he was under the influence, two drinks, and he was drunk. So without drinking a heck of a lot, he appeared to a lot of people to be a real drunk. And McClellan was one of those visiting officers who came to California and observed Grant's problem. Uh, and Grant's problem was serious. He got it, it led to a dispute with his commanding officer. And to avoid court-martial, he resigned in disgrace from the United States Army in 1853. He borrowed $500 from his friend Simon Buckner, came all the way back around, went back home, and lived in the St. Louis area for about seven years uh, under the thumb of his, of his domineering father-in-law uh, and was a total failure at a wide variety of civilian occupations. Uh, uh, it has been said that uh, he was too soft-hearted to be a tax collector, which he tried, said that he was too honest to be in real estate, which he tried. Uh, he was a farmer of sorts. Uh, his farmhouse gives you an idea how successful he was. It's called Hard Scrabble. And um, he, ended up, he ended up selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis, where he was seen by fellow Army officers. And, and so it was, it was rather uh, a disheartening period of time, to put it mildly. And he finally got fed up with his, the situation uh, with his father-in-law, left uh, St. Louis, came to Galena, Illinois, where he was under the thumb of his father. Uh, I was almost jumping from the frying pan into the fire uh, because his father was always looking to make, uh, make money off of Ulysses' success during the Civil War, as you know. And uh, Grant, at this period of time, in Galena, was the number three person in the family leather goods store, subordinate to his two younger brothers. So, you know, it's not really uh, a great record of success and leadership uh, uh, that he's putting together here. War breaks out. Grant's anxious to get into the war in a meaningful, in a meaningful position. He goes knocking on doors. He goes to see McClellan in Cincinnati. McClellan won't see him. He writes to Fremont in St. Louis, doesn't answer. He writes to Washington, nobody answers. Grant finally takes the hint and uh, figures he's going to have to do some groundwork. So he comes to Springfield, Illinois, and he trains Illinois volunteer regiments. And he does so very, very effectively. He's observed by the governor and the governor's staff. When a colonel loses control of the 21st Illinois Volunteers, the colonel is replaced. He's replaced with Grant, a well-deserved selection becomes colonel of the regiment. Within two days, he's got him squared away, uh, and he's got nowhere to go but up after that. Now, at this point, Grant gets a political break. Things do not change. Uh, his congressman at the time, Congressman Washburn, was the senior Republican in the House of Representatives. The, repart the party was all seven years old at this time, but they had taken over control of the government with Lincoln's election in 1860 and the mass exodus of, Dem of Southern Democrats leaving to go south. Uh, and so Washburn was a, an important figure. He threw his weight around, and he wanted to get credit for uh, making some of his constituents powerful. So he made Grant a brigadier general. That was the one undeserved uh, promotion that Grant received. All the rest of his promotions during the war he went out and earned on the battlefield. But although this was undeserved, it, it was a fortuitous uh, occurrence for the North because it put Grant in a critical position. 
Grant, Grant was in command of what was called the District of Southeast Missouri. These maps, by the way, these maps, by the way, are from the Grant book. They were done by a cartographer uh, in California whom I found and hired to do these original maps to show what the th important things I wanted to show. Grant was put in command in Cairo, Illinois. He had responsibility for this area of the Mississippi River. Um, the Confederates had moved into uh, Kentucky, violated the neutrality of Kentucky uh, to take Columbus, uh, a very vital point on the Mississippi River. As soon as the Confederates moved into Kentucky, uh, Grant immediately moved upstream and, and grabbed Paducah and also Smithville, uh, where the Cumberland and the Tennessee Rivers come into the Ohio. Um, now, Grant had orders from General Fremont, the area commander, to create a diversion at Belmont, which is a little camp essentially across the river. Uh, Belmont was a little bit upstream uh, across the river from Columbus, this Confederate stronghold on the river. Uh, and because Fremont was going to uh, uh, launch a major offensive in central Missouri, he wanted this flank covered with a diversionary action here. He did not want reinforcements moved in from Columbus by the Confederates. And Grant's order said, do not bring on a battle. So what did Grant do? Yes, he brought on a battle. Uh, but what I find most interesting about Belmont is not the fact that there was a skirmish and both sides lost about 600, uh, had about 600 casualties and Grant barely escaped uh, as his men had to fight their way out. But what I find interesting is what Grant did to set it up. And this was a prelude to the brilliant Vicksburg campaign uh, that Bob referred to earlier. Now, what Grant did was, instead of just bludgeoning down the river and going after Belmont, he sent troops overland from Paducah to threaten Columbus. When his gunboats and transports moved down the river uh, prior to attacking Belmont early in the morning, they tied up on the east bank of the river and gave every indication that Columbus and on the Kentucky side was their target. And what this did was it kept General Polk, also Bishop Polk, uh, the commanding general in that city, uh, from sending anybody out of Columbus. He wanted to defend Columbus. And the next morning, instead, Grant attacked Belmont. So this is very early in the war. Uh, as you can see, November of 1861, uh, Grant is already thinking. He's thinking. He's not just using brute force. As a matter of fact, he was grossly outnumbered by the Confederates in that area, which often was the case in his Western campaigns. You have to study Grant in the Western campaigns to get a sense of the fact that it, it wasn't just numbers, it was a lot more than numbers behind Grant's successes. Uh, and, and, and by the way, I like to refer to three major theaters. Uh, the Mississippi Valley Theater here, uh, over in Eastern Tennessee and Georgia, I, I refer to that as the Middle Theater, and then we have the Eastern or the Virginia Theater. Because otherwise, uh, you, you get into this talking about the East, and it's one tiny little corner of the Confederacy. And this is where Lee was, by the way. Uh, and you call everything else the West. And historically, that's been the way it's been handled. And just take, take a minute here and look. Lee, Lee's theater of operations from June the 1st, 1862 to the end of the war was here. That was it. He got as far as Gettysburg. Antietam's in here. This is it. This is where Lee was. Nowhere else. 
Grant is all over the place. Grant is all over the, the Mississippi Valley. Then he comes into Chattanooga, saves a, a Union Army in Chattanooga, which set up uh, Sherman's uh, march through Georgia the following year and up through Carolina the following year. And then Grant is brought east to the same theater and within a, within a year wins the war. So Grant is in three, the, the three major theaters. I'm, I'm ignoring the Trans-Mississippi. I, I contend it was ancillary theater. Uh, you in this area may disagree. But I think those are the three, because there was critical interplay among those three theaters, particularly for the Confederates, as to where do you put your resources. And I think they overloaded their resources. Bobby Lee got favoritism, and the capital was here. Uh, and this area was oversupplied uh, from in the big picture as, uh, with respect to Confederate resources. Okay. So, Grant, after, after Belmont, Grant approaches... Henry Halleck, the new commander who succeeded Fremont. Henry Halleck, one of the least impressive Union generals during the war. Grant said to Halleck, he said, he went to St. Louis, and he said to Halleck, what we ought to do is go up, go up the Cumberland, go up the Tennessee, and take Fort Henry and Fort Donelson. Because if we have control of those rivers, we have a sword into the left flank of the Confederacy because the Tennessee River goes all the way down to the last tier of, of uh, southern states uh, into Alabama and may nick the corner of Mississippi here. Uh, Cumberland River over here goes to Nashville, the, the capital of Tennessee, and the, the early storehouse of the West for the Confederacy. Halleck threw him out of the office. He, he cut him off. He said, get out of here. Those decisions are to be made by officers senior to you. Thank you. Now, fortunately, Lincoln was having his usual problems with McClellan in the East. <laughs> and so Lincoln, out of frustration with McClellan, issued his famous General Orders Number 1. Uh, and what those orders said was basically, as of Washington's birthday, pick a day, that's a good day, Washington's birthday, 1862, all Union armies will move forward on the attack. And he specifically mentioned different places, including the forces at Cairo, Illinois, they were to move forward. Well, I guess Halleck began to get the message. Uh, also, Halleck was a little concerned with competition from General Buell, who was over in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Halleck was concerned if Buell started moving south against the Confederates, he might be good enough to get reinforced from elsewhere, and he might make Halleck look bad. So for a variety of reasons, Halleck changed his mind and finally authorized Grant to proceed, not against both forts, but against Fort Henry on the Tennessee River. Within hours after getting the orders to proceed, Grant, who had worked things out with Flag Officer Andrew Foote of the Navy, had his troops on board the transports and was moving upstream. And uh, uh, looked behind, you know, making sure they got away before somebody canceled the orders. For, uh, now, for, unfortunately for the Army, which wanted to take some credit for it, uh, the Navy was very good, and the Navy gunboats won a two-hour gun duel, artillery duel, with the Confederate forces in Fort Henry. Well, maybe it has something to do with the fact that half the Confederate guns were underwater because Fort Henry was so poorly situated that the surrender was taken by rowing into the fort. So the disappointed Army troops were here, and Grant, without orders to do so, took the initiative again, 
and said, okay, we're going to go across country and go after Ford Donaldson. Now, he thought that would be a pretty quick venture, and it turned into a couple of week uh, exercise because the weather turned very bad. It turned out that the Confederates were reinforcing Fort Donaldson, and the Union needed to get reinforcements in themselves. So this is when Sherman began working with Grant. Uh, Sherman was among the officers who brought reinforcements in, and Grant and uh, his underlings had Fort, had 16,000 Confederates trapped in Fort Donaldson. They had them, had them surrounded in the fort. Now, again, they hoped to win the easy victory with the gunboats. The gunboats had gone back downstream. That Most of them had gone to Cairo for minor repairs and then come all the way back up and came up to Cumberland. Unfortunately, the guns at Fort Donaldson, unfortunately from a Union perspective, the guns at Fort Donaldson were located high on the cliffs, and they decimated the Union gunboats, sent them flailing back downstream. Uh, 20, 20 plus sailors were killed. Uh, Flag officer Foote was wounded, uh, and it was clear the Army was going to have to do the job. Next day, Grant was conferring downstream with Flag Officer Foote, when lo and behold, the Confederates broke, broke out. They could have broken out. They broke through the Union lines and had an escape route to Nashville. So they broke out on the south side, right over here, and they had an escape route. And then they hesitated, said, do we go back and get everything? What did we do? And while they were hesitating, Grant arrived back from his conference, found chaos on the battlefield, took immediate charge, ordered all of his three divisions to counterattack the Confederates, especially on the left flank of the Union, uh, the north, the north uh, portion of the battlefield, because Grant figured that the Confederates had broken out down here, they probably had weakened themselves in the north, which was absolutely accurate. And so General Smith um, got, into, uh, got in so far that he had guns that controlled the entire fort. He had guns positioned to control the entire fort, and the escape route was closed off. It became clear the Confederates were going to have to surrender. Um, Nathan Bedford Forrest escaped with about uh, 1,000 cavalrymen along the river, Another 1,000 uh, Confederates got away by boat. 14,000 were left there. The two, th th there was a Confederate triumvirate in charge. The two incompetent generals left, and they left, uh, they left Simon Buckner holding the bag. And they figured, hey, good old Cy, remember he loaned 500 bucks to Ulysses, to Sam Grant a while back? And um, so Buckner applied to Grant for surrender terms, and Grant, of course, responded, no terms, unconditional surrender. So again, his adopted name, the U.S. Grant, became unconditional surrender grant. Buckner told him he was ungentlemanly, but uh, nevertheless surrendered. And Grant then took, uh, uh, took the surrender of a 14,000-man Confederate Army. Now, just to demonstrate the gap between Grant and all other Civil War generals, do you know how many armies surrendered between the beginning of the Civil War and Appomattox? Three is the answer. Three armies surrendered. And who, to whom did those three armies surrender? Ulysses Grant. Every one of them surrendered to Grant. There were no other armies who surrendered. You had 14,000 troops at Fort Donelson. You had about 28,000 at Vicksburg and you had 25,000 that were left at Appomattox Courthouse. That's it. 
Other armies did not surrender. What does that tell you? It tells you that Grant, unlike most Civil War generals, did not go after just points and places. He went after the enemy army. He shared Lincoln's view that the way to win this war was to go after the enemy armies, and he sure did that. Now, uh, but I, I don't want to imply that he did that unthinkingly uh, and, that, and that that's all he did. Uh, we'll, we'll study that a little further. Okay, Grant had some problems. You know, you had a, you had a question tonight about was he relieved after, after Shiloh. Well, not only was he relieved after Shiloh, he was relieved after Fort Donaldson because good old Henry Halleck back in St. Louis was jealous of Grant's success. And there was a communications problem, uh, and, but it was primarily jealousy. So this is when Halleck told McClellan, who was the general-in-chief in Washington, you know, the problem is starting again. You know the problem. Uh, and, uh, and, and he's not communicating with me, you know. And so McClellan authorized him to arrest Grant, which he did. Grant was relieved of command. He was in arrest for about a week until Stanton and Lincoln got wind of it and said, hey, this, this, this guy's a winner. What are you doing? And so uh, he, was, he was then released and allowed to resume command of the Army of the Tennessee way upstream down here at Shiloh, Pittsburgh Landing or Shiloh. And Grant was there with his troops waiting for General Buell to slowly make his way across Tennessee, as Buell was wont to do, uh, to, to merge the two armies, the Army of the Cumberland coming across to merge with the Army of the Tennessee. And the game plan was to go after Corinth, which was the railroad crossroads of the Confederate Southwest, a nice target. Now, one of Grant's biggest weaknesses comes into play here. You know, Grant was anxious to get to the enemy, which is great. That's what the Union needed. But uh, in, in focusing on what he wanted to do to the enemy, he didn't pay much attention at all to what the enemy might be doing to him, might be planning for him. And at this time, the Confederates finally gave up on their strategy of let's defend every inch of the entire border of the Confederacy, and they started concentrating their forces. Good idea. So they brought in troops from Charleston, Pensacola, uh, elsewhere on the Gulf Coast, and they got them in by railroad. Here you have lots of railroads. They brought them in by railroad to Corinth. Also, after Grant took Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson, good old Bishop Polk had to give up Columbus because he was now outflanked, brought his troops down. So the Confederates put together a substantial army of probably 45,000 troops uh, in Corinth, and their game plan was to go after Grant before Buell got there. Let's, let's take care of Grant, and then we'll deal with Buell after that. But we don't want to wait until the two armies have merged. And both Sherman and Grant were negligent in ignoring reports that there was a lot of Confederate activity out there in those woods. And so on Sunday morning, what is it, April the 6th, 1862, when the Confederates attacked, uh, the Confederates had a great initial success and rolled through Grant's camp because Grant and Sherman were not prepared. Here is day one of Shiloh. This is, this is the most uh, complicated map on the surface uh, in the book. However, it's really quite simple. What you have is the beginning, uh, beginning uh, uh, at dawn, the Union troops are here. Uh, let's see, where do we, yeah, Union troops are here. Three hours later, they're driven back about a, mi about a mile. And by the end of the day, 
They're hanging on by their nails to keep from being driven into the Tennessee River. Grant was all over the battlefield in direct contact with all of his commanders and uh, did a brilliant job at great personal risk and saved his army. He saved his army at Shiloh. He got him in trouble. He's responsible for that, but he saved his army. Now, he did more than that because that night when his generals advised him to skedaddle back across the Tennessee, get the river between the enemy and us, and wait for Buell to come up, Grant said, no, we'll attack at, at first light. We will, we will attack at first light. And uh, his generals were shocked, not as, not as greatly probably as the Confederate generals on the other side. Uh, A.S. Johnston had been killed. He was the Confederate commander. And he was replaced that day in the field by PGT Beauregard. And Beauregard telegraphed Richmond that night, we have won a great victory at Shiloh. Now, that was the last telegram Beauregard sent from there. He forgot to send the follow-up. Uh, now, Grant had three things going for him. Grant had three things going for him. Number one, uh, through Grant's fault, really, miscommunication, Lou Wallace and his division were not in the battle. They arrived as the, as the battle came to a halt on day one. So Grant had a quarter of his army fresh and ready to go. Number two, Buell had started arriving late that afternoon, some of his advanced troops. So Buell's troops were crossing the river. There were reinforcements coming in. And number three was the element of surprise. And so if I were to show you a map of the second day, which I don't have, don't want to confuse you any further than this, but let me just say, it would be the reverse of this. Uh, after a couple hours, the Confederates were back to here. By the end of the day, they were hightailing it down the Corinth Road. Now, after this, yes, Grant was relieved again. Halleck, good old Halleck, came down and took command of these combined armies. Now, uh, there are always debates about numbers in the Civil War, but I will, I will say that Halleck then had under his command just about, if not the largest force ever assembled during the Civil War. He had 130,000 troops under his command. He had Buell's army and, and, uh, and Grant's army. And, and uh, what happened was, we say Grant was relieved. Grant was elevated, uh, as, as you, those of you who've been in the military or even in, in business know, you, you elevate somebody into, into a meaningless position. He was elevated into a meaningless number two position as Halleck's deputy. And he was replaced as commander of the Army of the Tennessee by George Thomas. And I really think this had long-term ramifications. Someday I intend to do a positive book about poor George Thomas. But I think that, that, that Thomas was upset. I think that Thomas, well, I'm sorry, I think that Grant was upset that he was relieved and Thomas was put in that job. And he sort of held it against Thomas, even though it wasn't Thomas's fault. Uh, and, uh, and, and as you know, at the end of the war, uh, Thomas and, and Grant were like oil and water, and, and Grant had lost his patience with, with uh, Thomas's defense against uh, John Bell Hood uh, at, uh, at Nashville. And with, without good reason, Grant was hundreds of miles away, didn't know what was going on. But I think the beginning of it came right here. Anyway, for our purposes, yes, Grant was very dismayed by the developments, and, and he was thinking about resigning, and Sherman talked him into, into staying, which he did. Now, we don't have enough time to go into the details of some minor victories at Corinth and Iuka uh, and things like that. Or well, let me just mention, though, what happened at Corinth. What happened at Corinth, basically, is that, is that Halleck 
made a fool of himself. He took 130,000 troops. He wasn't going to be surprised. They marched, if I may use that term, uh, about three-quarters of a mile a day and then entrenched every night and took 20 days to move 30 miles. Uh, and and uh, uh, when they got there, uh, they semi-surrounded Corinth, but um, left an escape route, and that escape route was used. One, one night, there was great noise coming out of Corinth. Bands were playing. Trains were coming and going, tooting their whistles. sounded like horrendous reinforcements were coming in, and woe be it to Halleck's army. And uh, the next morning, there wasn't a soul to be found in Corinth. 50,000 Confederates, with all their guns, had left Corinth, went south to Tupelo, Mississippi, and lived to fight again another day, because they did. They actually then were the core of the army that invaded Tennessee and Kentucky in the fall of 1862 and caused some real headaches for Lincoln politically late that year. Uh, Halleck let them get away. Halleck then declared victory. Uh, it's uh, like um, Senator George Aiken in, in the Vietnam War. Let's declare victory and go home. Well, he declared victory because he had captured Corinth, Mississippi. And this is just a classic example of the meaningless capture of a point. Uh, the, the, with 130,000 troops, can you imagine what Grant would have done with 130,000 troops? He would have been after those Confederates 50 miles down the road real fast. Anyway. Late 1862 and on into 1863, Grant, after the Confederate invasion was repelled with the loss of Perryville, Confederates were pushed back down uh, into Lower Tennessee. Uh, Grant got his troops back uh, and uh, was in Southwest, um, uh, in, in, the, in the Great Southwest. Halleck, by the way, Peter Principal, had been promoted to Washington as the General in Chief, uh, which got him out of Grant's hair. Well, that's a very good development for Grant. Uh, but Grant then focused on Vicksburg, Mississippi. Vicksburg, Mississippi. Now, Lincoln had said Vicksburg is the key, and whoever has the, who holds the key is going to win the war. The Union had captured New Orleans, so they controlled up to uh, Port Hudson, Louisiana, down here. From the north, they had had successes. Pope took island number 10, and they controlled down to here. Here is Vicksburg due west of Jackson, Mississippi. And Vicksburg was the Gibraltar of the Mississippi, high on the cliffs, of unsuccessful campaigns. He, he came down, tried to go overland, and was rebuffed when his supply line was cut behind him at Holly Springs. Uh, and then he trying a variety of means to get to Vicksburg. You were on the tour there, so you know about the canals, and you know about trying to get through the bayous and the swamps about six creative, imaginative possibilities. Uh, they all failed, but he kept his men busy, and the morale seems to have been pretty good. And then, with the, with the coming of good weather in the spring, he moved ahead with his, a, with his A plan. And his A plan was, let's take the troops down the West Bank, cross below, Miss, below Vicksburg, cross Mississippi, below Vicksburg, a major amphibious crossing, and then come up and get Vicksburg from the south. Now, Grant didn't just do that, though. What he did was, this is Shades of Belmont, and, and really shows Grant at his finest. Grant created so many diversions that poor John Pemberton, the co Confederate commander in Vicksburg, did not know what was coming. What Grant did was he sent troops, he sent cavalry over into northern Alabama. That kept 
good old Nathan Bedford Forrest occupied, he was never in Mississippi uh, uh, during, at, at this time. So he kept the major Confederate cavalry commander occupied in Alabama. Then he sent Brigadier General Benjamin Grierson, an Illinois uh, cavalryman, um, south the length of Mississippi. He raided over here, uh, raided railroads, raided towns, uh, raided military facilities. Uh, primarily was, was tearing up track and destroying trains and creating havoc throughout Mississippi. Very little, very little damage to civilians, uh, contrary to Jefferson Davis' later comments. This was the most effective strategic cavalry raid in the entire war because of the way it set up Vicksburg, the Vicksburg campaign. Now, what Pemberton did was he sent cavalry all over the state. He had no cavalry left here. They were all out all over Mississippi looking for ben, uh, Benjamin Grierson. In addition, reinforcements coming in on this railroad were stopped here. Infantry reinforcements were stopped. They were sent out looking for Grierson. Now, also, as if that weren't enough, uh, Grant kept Sherman with a third of Grant's troops directly across from Vicksburg on the Louisiana side of the Mississippi River to threaten a direct assault on Vicksburg, which they had tried the, pr the prior Christmas. And Pemberton was concerned, number one, about Grierson, number two, about Sherman. And so when the crossing started down here and the cry for reinforcements went up, Pemberton ignored that for over 24 hours. So there was no chance of stopping Grant at the beachhead. And I should, I should mention that Grierson's raid was so perfectly timed, I don't even think they imagined in their fondest dreams it would be this perfectly timed. When Grierson rode out of Mississippi into the Union lines in Louisiana, he could hear the firing of the guns at Grand Gulf, Mississippi, which is the prelude to the crossing of the Mississippi, which occurred the next day. That's how good the timing was. Um, and what did Grant do then? Well, he crossed the Mississippi River in what was one of the, the largest amphibious crossings, military crossings ever attempted, uh, especially up until that time. And uh, with 30,000 troops, he crosses into, into Mississippi. Now, let me just, without going into the details, Grant was outnumbered in the theater about 45,000 to 30,000 when he first crossed the Mississippi River. So once again, we want to destroy the myth that Grant won because of numbers. He was outnumbered in that theater, and he operated essentially without a supply line the first 18 days of the campaign. During the 18 days of the campaign, his men fought and won at Port Gibson, at Raymond, at Jackson, at, at uh, Champions Hill, Big Black River Bridge, and besieged Vicksburg. Five victories, 18 days, brilliantly conceived campaign, uh, drove away Confederate forces out here under Joseph Johnston, and trapped the bulk of Pemberton's men in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Grant then can be criticized for two assaults on Vicksburg, maybe not for the first one, it was worth the try. The second one, three days later, not a good idea. Uh, took heavy casualties in both those assaults and then said, lesson, excuse me, lesson learned, uh, we're going to just besiege the city. We're going to starve them out. Six weeks later, they were starved out. They surrendered July the 4th, 1863, which combined with Gettysburg and combined with the Tullahoma campaign, cast a pall over the Confederacy. Now, Grant then takes a surrender of 28,000 men at Vicksburg. Clearly a national hero. Goes to uh, New Orleans for a little bit of R&R. &R. 
which is rudely interrupted a couple of months later because the Confederates, after a major but costly victory at Chickamauga, had trapped William Rosecrans's Army of the Cumberland, that's the middle theater now, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, was for all practical purposes surrounded by the Confederates and You almost have to go to Chattanooga. I know I did before I understood what the heck this was all about. But, but I'll try to real briefly explain. Chattanooga sits in the valley. The Tennessee River comes down and around, uh, up and around. Um, down here you have Lookout Mountain, which is the dominant geographic feature of the area. Over here, Missionary Ridge, which you look at today, it's all housing, unfortunately. But it wasn't that much of a ridge. Um, but it was, it was high enough ground to have military consequences, and then Tunnel Hill was up here. Now, uh, Rosecrans and his army were starving. They were down to a third rations. They'd eaten all their animals. They had a 60-mile a mud track to get supplies in. Again, if you want the details, read the book. But uh, within five days, Grant conceived, well, he approved of a plan that had already been thought up there. And uh, he approved the plan which within five days had a supply line effectively feeding the men. Um, so the cracker line was established. Within 30 days, he had organized a breakout, and the Union forces broke out of Chattanooga and drove the Confederates back into northern Georgia, never to again seriously threaten Tennessee. Uh, now, I will say this, that uh, you can read Grant's memoirs, and, and, and he will try to give all the credit to Sherman, his buddy, uh, and, he, and he tried to set it up so Sherman would be the successful party here. In fact, Grant, so Grant's plan was, and by the way, the Union forces built up to 80,000 in a month. They brought the 11th and 12th Corps around from the east by rail, the most effective railroad movement of the Civil War. Uh, and that got Joe Hooker and the 11th and 12th Corps here, and they were on the, south, on the right flank or the south flank. Uh, uh, Sherman marched all the way across from the Mississippi River all the way across to get in, and as soon as Sherman arrived, the attack started. The game plan was for Sherman to roll up the Confederate right flank and, uh, and basically win the battle that way. The backup was that Hooker on the right flank would, would roll up the Confederates down here. Neither one succeeded. Sherman took tremendous, tremendous casualties and never made any progress. And then you had the miracle at Missionary Ridge where, out of desperation, those troops were ordered to create a diversion by taking the, the gun pits at the base of the, of the ridge, and then they were in no man's land and used their intelligence and just spontaneously attacked up the hill and broke the Confederate lines, and the entire Confederate army panicked and fled back into northern Georgia. There, Lee had a major role in how this whole thing got set up, which I can deal with in the Q&A if you want, but... But Lee, Lee takes, has to take a lot of responsibility for this failure uh, hundreds of miles from where he was by, by what he did, what, the ideas that he gave to President Davis. Anyway, after this, Grant has now won the Mississippi Valley. He has saved the Union Army in the middle theater. It's rather an obvious next step to make him the general-in-chief, to bring him east, give him three stars, and say, okay, win the war now, will you? Uh, there was a lot of congressional pressure uh, for this to happen. Abraham Lincoln had some, some uh, concerns because, uh, like Polk before him, he saw this general as a threat for the presidency. 
So he wanted to know, is Grant interested in running for the presidency? Oh, Grant was no fool. Grant wrote a letter to a friend. The friend went to Washington, went to the White House. The president asked him, so what's Grant's views on the presidency? Does he want to run? Uh, well, funny you should ask, Mr. President. Here's a letter that he wrote. Grant had written this letter saying, if Abraham Lincoln wants to run again, I don't. Lincoln said, that's my kind of general. <laughs> signed, signed the approval, and, uh, and Grant then was general-in-chief. And I, I think shortly thereafter, I think Grant made a mistake. Uh, Grant went out to Brandy Station and to meet with George Meade, who was then the commander of the Army of the Potomac. After Gettysburg, George had not been sufficiently aggressive to advance the Union cause very effectively, uh, and Grant was prepared to relieve him of command. But George sort of one-upped him. Uh, George, uh, uh, before Grant could say anything, uh, George Meade said to him, he said, you know, if you want to relieve me, that's fine. You know, I respect that. And Grant was so taken aback that he said, oh, dude, I want to do that to this nice guy. And so he decided to leave George, uh, uh, George Meade in command. Now, I don't have so much of a problem of George Meade, the man being there. I have a problem really with the whole concept of Grant going into the field which is fine, leaving the politics of Washington behind. I have a problem with his going into the field thinking that there would not be confusion about who was calling the shots when you've got Meade and Grant both in the field. So personally, I think that Grant should have relieved him and replaced him with Ulysses Grant, and that Grant should have worn two hats, been the commander-in-chief and the commander of the Army of the Potomac. A lot of the confusion about who was calling the shots and, and who's responsible for what uh, uh, had real fallout at Cold Harbor and, uh, uh, and at, the, at the Battle of the Crater outside Petersburg. To wrap it up, uh, Grant, Grant, of course, devised a simple little plan with Sherman, a little uh, uh, pincers movement, if you will, uh, and at the beginning, Grant and Sherman agreed on this. Later, Sherman proposed and Grant approved this leg of the march, and then actually the unknown but probably even more effective aspect of Sherman during the last uh, year and a half of the war was, uh, actually the last year of the war, uh, was his movement through the Carolinas, backdooring Lee, uh, which Lee did nothing about. Um, and meanwhile, uh, Grant kept Lee busy up here. Grant and Sherman's biggest worry was that Lee would break loose troops to send down here to, uh, 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 to gang up on Sherman. But they need not have worried because Lee never thought about another theater. He did not. He did not. Um, I haven't talked about this because everybody knows all this and you're bored to death with the Overland Campaign. But that is the Overland Campaign. And what it shows, what it shows is that in seven weeks, Grant almost won the war. You know, he ended up sneaking his whole army across the James River without Lee knowing about it for over two days, and Lee sitting on reinforcements in Richmond, not sending them to Petersburg because he didn't believe Beauregard that all these Union corps were down there. And so 50,000 Union troops had more than two days to attack 3,500 Confederates in Petersburg and didn't do it, did not take Petersburg. That should have and would have effectively ended the war in the summer of 1864 less than two months after Grant started campaigning in the East. And as a result of that, we had the campaign drag on, and therefore Grant only won the war in the East in less than a year after his successors had failed to do so in about four years. Grant's criticized for the casualties he took. Number one, 
His percentage of casualties were much lower than Lee's. His were replaceable as well. Secondly is Grant took fewer casualties in the Overland campaign uh, and, and actually in his entire experience in the East than all of his predecessors together in the East who had really nothing to show for what their activities. Um, in, the book, in the book, I have a 40-page appendix analyzing the, the uh, casualties of Grant and Grant's opponents. So I've got, for each major battle, battle and campaign, I give you 10, 12, 15 different authors' estimates of what those casualties were, and all the classic sources. And then at the, at the end of each one, I, will, I then make a subjective judgment as to which set of numbers I think is the most accurate, and then I total them all up in the last page. You don't like to read 40 pages, read the last page only. Last page only is this one right here. The secrets out of the bag. These are unbelievable numbers. I couldn't believe it when I ended up doing this. Uh, okay, first of all, in the West, Grant imposed 84,000 casualties on the Confederates, suffered 37,000 himself. Now, this is the classic definition of casualty killed, wounded, missing. Um, in the East, Grant imposed 107,000 casualties, suffered 117,000. For the war, Grant imposed 190,000 on the Confederates, suffered 153,000 himself, so he's a net 37,000. Unbelievable. He's a net 37,000. He has imposed that many more casualties on the Confederates. Now, uh, uh, I would say to you, given what he did in winning the East, winning the Mississippi Valley, saving the Army at Chattanooga for the preserve the Union successful success chances in the middle theater. He, he almost single-handedly won the war, quite honestly. And he could be a minus 100,000, and it still would have been fantastic. But he is instead plus almost 40,000 for the war. Um, my last chapter in the book is a chapter about Grant's winning traits. Uh, pick your favorite one here. Uh, As you can tell by my stars, I like two of them. I like perseverance. Man, he just kept coming at you. He didn't give up. Vicksburg, but he had seven unsuccessful attempts in various ways. Just kept coming until he found a way to do it. And the bottom line, moral courage. Uh, what's moral courage? The easiest definition for a roundtable of moral courage is that which George McClellan was not. <laughs> Okay, and one other little wrinkle I want to give you, I'll close on this. You know, and I know we have an expert on the, uh, after 1864, among your members. Uh, here's some numbers I put together, because I, I like numbers, uh, as you can tell. And, uh, you know, at the top we have the reason why the election of 1864 is called a landslide, because Lincoln got 55%, and McClellan's 45%, and he beat them 212 to 21 in the electoral vote. And so you say, that's it. Let's walk away. We don't have to analyze anything. Well, hold it up just a second. There were 4 million votes. If these, these 30,000 votes had changed, McClellan would have won 97 to 96 in the Electoral College. 29,000 votes had changed. To me, that is totally amazing because in the nine weeks before the election of 1864, what had happened? Atlanta had fallen, the most crucial step. The Shenandoah Valley had been cleared out by Sheridan, and Mobile Harbor had fallen. 
my God, with all those great military victories within nine weeks of the election, why should there be any doubt whatsoever? And yet, look at all these northern states and how close those votes were. Now, what's the relevance of all this to Grant? Well, I just throw this in the pot as another reason why Grant had to be so aggressive during the Overland campaign. He already was offensive, already aggressive, and that's what you want in the Union General. But the pressure was even on him more so because here he is, May 1864, starting a major campaign, presidential election coming up six months later. Just look back to last year. A president in wartime wants his side to be appearing to be strong and winning. And there shouldn't be any doubt about that. And so the pressure was on Grant to do things. And this shows how close it was, even given all the successes, military successes of the Union in 1864. So, with that, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, I submit to you that Ulysses S. Grant was clearly the greatest general of the Civil War, and I thank you very much for listening to me this evening. Thank you, Ed. Thank you very much, Ed. I know you'll take a few questions from anybody. Love to take questions. I know I haven't raised any issues, so. Yes, over here. I wonder if you comment a little bit more on uh, Grant's <coughs> weakness with regard to Sherman. Um, Grant's weakness with regard to Sherman. Well, uh, are you implying that he gave him too much discretion? Uh, well, that he gave him too much oh, okay, okay. Uh, right. Uh, basically, uh, there was a little inside group. The insider group was Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan. And they were definitely a winning combination, uh, particularly in the East, to wrap up the war. Uh, but I do think that uh, Grant allowed his closeness to Sherman to affect his long-term judgment. So when he wrote his memoirs 20 years later, his memoirs are filled with, Bill Sherman is always the good guy, he's always the hero. George Thomas, who is he? Uh, and, and of course, Phil Sheridan, good old Phil. Uh, uh, even though he rode roughshod over Governor Warren uh, at, um, uh, at fi after Five Forks relieved him of command. Um, so that uh, uh, Grant, Grant's friendship with Sherman, uh, uh, what caught me off guard at first was, I, didn't, I do not see this as impairing what he did during the war. I see it as impairing his later judgments about how successful Sherman was. Now, give Sherman credit. I mean, Sherman, Sherman was very effective in, in his Georgia and Carolina campaigns later. But at, um, at Chattanooga, uh, uh, Sherman was a disaster. And, and, and Thomas ended up saving the day and, and got very little credit for it uh, because Sherman and Grant just did not mix. Sherman was not a member of the club. So as a result, after Nashville, Sherman was stripped of his army. He was sitting out there with basically no troops while his, his troops were moved to the east to finish wrapping up things in the east. So Sherman was on the outs, never got any credit for anything, and, uh, and where, uh, where Grant, uh, or, or I should say, yeah, Thomas, Thomas was on the outs, whereas Sherman, Sheridan, uh, followed Grant in command of the United States Army until virtually uh, 19, uh, 1900. Yes, sir. I'd like you to comment on two uh, forgotten and uh, actually very good generals in two different but one was the general. But Simon Cameron, the Secretary of War, was the first person to recognize the importance of payroll and set up Grant's entire career by ordering the Chicago militia 
and battery A of the first Illinois light artillery as they would become. It was mighty that Jerry Cross was trying to say they were the first people to go and seize Grand Cairo and cross the river and seize Bird Point, Missouri. He never gets any credit for that. He's just a word healer and not an mm-hmm. And the good Confederate subordinates all had their training under General William Jenkins Ward, who was slighted, besides dying very soon after the Civil War, by his feud with Winfield Scott. And of course, after the war, when the Jews started to come out, nobody wanted to listen to Confederate well, let me say that on all those issues, you know far more than I. <laughs> we have a question here. Absolutely, you make you make a great point. Uh, I, I have not I have not I have not personally done studies, but I have seen I have seen uh, studies that were done. Okay, and and they they indicated that about seventy eight percent of the Union soldiers voted for Lincoln, and and I will say that it's it's also common knowledge that in those states which did not allow absentee balloting. Uh, the uh, Union commanders passed the word to try to get as many troops back home. Indiana sticks in my mind as one of the states. Uh, try to get as many troops back home to vote because they had a sense that the uh, military vote would be very pro-Lincoln. Yes, without, without, the, without the military vote, uh, uh, some of those crucial numbers in crucial states uh, would, would radically have changed. I think there's a descending view back here. Well, basically, here, here, you, have, here you have the votes that were needed to change the entire election. You needed a switch of uh, 1,200 in Connecticut, 5,300 in Illinois, 9,800 in Indiana, uh, which is where I recall uh, soldiers being sent home to make sure they voted. Uh, 3,300 in New York, 716 in Oregon, 9,000 in Pennsylvania. If, if, if indeed 78,000, uh, 78% of the military voted for Lincoln, I think you're intelligent enough, you can look at it and draw your own conclusions without taking somebody else's about what might have been. Yes, sir. Uh, well, I've actually done the statistics. Basically, it is correct uh, that the soldier vote, Lincoln would have won those states without the soldier vote. Uh, it was 78%, there were 154,000 soldier votes counted. I think you got the cloud with the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, that's right, I do. I do. I have a D on the end of it, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> 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 the math is wrong on the top one, too. 212 and 21 is 233. Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay. But uh, my question would be, uh, in the beginning, you seem to, you seem to hint that, they, that the Confederacy, through some other strategy, would have had huh. a decent chance of winning the war. Am I correct in assuming that? That's what you were saying. Yes. And I'll expl- I can explain what that is. Okay. In 24 wars between European and North American nations in the 19th century, 
decided they had larger numbers, one in each one of the 24 times. And no war in the 19th century between European nations where one side was outnumbered three and a half to one, did the smaller side win. Therefore, isn't it uh, rather anti-historical to presume the South could have won the war? Okay, that, that's a good point. If you assume that the, more, that the war had to be settled militarily, this was a rather unique situation, and, and of course most wars are an extension of politics, and the Civil War of all wars is a classic example of that. My contention is the way the South could have won the war was to basically stay on the defensive tactically and, strateg- and strategically, uh, preserve its resources, and by November of 1864, still appeared to have a chance of winning. There was enough dissension in the North that the rug could have been pulled out from under Lincoln. These are only these are part of the picture, uh, and I'm saying these are amazing given the great Union success. And that great Union success was despite the fact that Lee had squandered his his troops so badly in 1862 and 1863. And so I do think that the South had a respectable chance. And basically, if you look at the writings of the Southern leaders, both political and military, uh, during 1862, 63, 64, you'll see that a lot of them talk about the forthcoming presidential election and that they wanted to play on the the broad descent from the war in the North. And so uh, I agree that if the war were fought out purely militarily, there was no way the North could lose, really. But uh, I think they could lose at the ballot box and that if McClellan had beaten Lincoln, my view is, given McClellan's stated views, number one, it would have sold out on the slavery issue in a second. Number two, I think that he would have been likely to come forward even before he was sworn in to basically say, let's have a ceasefire and talk about this as gentlemen. That was his approach. And once you had a ceasefire, I think there may have been de facto Southern independence at that point. So militarily, yes. Politically, no, I don't, I don't think so. And I think that I think that by losing so many men, the, the, Confeder- the Confederacy appeared not to have a chance of victory by the time the elections came, and that's why they lost the election. And they would, they would, not, have, they would not have had that had Lee fought a smarter war. Can I do a follow-up? Okay, well, yeah, correct. Well, one more. Uh, can you name any uh, elected government during the 19th century that was not actively losing a war Uh, the 19th century? No, I. Uh, the, the wars that came to my mind, the wars. So, so yeah. your political perspective never came to again. The, 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 the wars that come to my mind are Vietnam, uh, Korea, uh, the American Revolution, Chiang Kai, uh, 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 the the uh, Mao Zedong in China, etc., where you had clearly uh, military military inferior uh, parties who won big wars because public support for the war gave out. Look at last year in the United States, George Bush was concerned that we couldn't take on uh, terrorists in a third party, in a third world nation, uh, uh, was concerned about public support because uh, the rug could have been pulled out, of under, uh, out from under him in a situation where there's never been such a military disparity in human history. Two more, two more, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one more. Yes. 
Yes. Um, the, the problem, the, there was a problem there about who had operational command. And, and, and it's so murky that it's difficult to say. Those people who, uh, who want Grant off the hook say, well, he had delegated to, to, to Meade and Meade, Meade had it. And the Meade defenders would say, no, Grant had it. So there was confusion about, about who, was, who was really in charge. Uh, uh, the difficulty at Cold Harbor, of course, was the fact that uh, the, the attack was delayed a couple of times and the Confederates had more than a day and a half to prepare for it. And it should have been called off. It should have been called off because it was no longer a surprise. I think insofar as Grant was involved in the decision-making, uh, I think his view was, my God, we're only eight miles out of Richmond. We, we've got to bust through and end the war. We, we, we've gone this far in six weeks. Let's, let's uh, actually in four weeks by that point, let's end the war now. And he, he, he figured it was worth a gamble. And it proved to be a mistake. And Grant himself, in his memoir, said that was the worst mistake he ever made, and he wished he had not done it. Ed, thank you very, very much for a marvelous presentation. Let's give another round of applause again. Thank you. Again, Ed, Ed still has some books outside, out uh, in the lobby area. Please take a look at him. His Grant book is a marvelous, marvelous book, as I know he's uh, made the fact of tonight. Everyone, thank you very much for your presentation tonight for our gallant service to the Chicago Civil War Roundtable presented to Mr. Edward H. Bonnekemper III, November 11, 2005. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I Jeff. appreciate it. Thank you very All much, right. Ed. Thank you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next uh, month, December. Stephen Fratt, Civil War Techno Technology and Technique. Thank you. Have a good, have a good month.